and uh, happy Palm Sunday. And it is, uh, it's fitting that we would finish our series, What Does the Bible Say About That, on Palm Sunday, uh, as we answer the question, what does the Bible say about eternity? Uh, because Palm Sunday, let's be honest, Palm Sunday would have just been another day in Jerusalem had it not been for the fact that Jesus had set his eyes on the cross when he entered Jerusalem, and that that was the place where he would purchase our eternal life uh, through his death and subsequent resurrection, which we will celebrate next week. And so it is fitting that we would talk about eternity today. Now, one thing I do want to just make sure is, is clear, we're not going to talk about the end times this morning in terms of the, the series of events that, that make up the end times as described in Scripture. Instead, we're, we recognize that we could not devote uh, enough time in one sermon to cover all of that information. And so we're going to be doing a theological workshop uh, this summer, and more info will be coming on that. But if you're really curious about the end times, then that'll be a great opportunity to come and engage some of those issues. Uh, also, just so that you are also aware this week, we will not be doing the, uh, the text in question and answer at the end of the, the service this week. Uh, partly because a lot of the questions that will come up with this sermon will be answered in that uh, theological workshop on the end times. But also, as you can see, the, the communion tables are out. We're going to move into a time of communion at the end of the sermon. Uh, that it would, just be, it, would just, it would not feel like a natural transition into communion from the sermon if we also did that question and answer time. So uh, if you were really looking forward to that, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Just come to the theological workshop and then you'll be happy. Um, but with eternity, with eternity, uh, it is, this is a topic that uh, I know invokes some fear. Uh, and a lot of times the fear that comes along with that, especially for believers, is just based in the unknown. All the different, uh, the different things that we're not sure of how it's going to be in eternity, and so there's fear associated with it. And oftentimes we speculate on things that we just don't have the information about. Um, in terms of what, you know, what's the food going to be like? Well, who knows? It'll probably be good. But unfortunately, a, as a result of this fear, we, we oftentimes will, will go searching for anything, anything to help uh, calm the anxiety. And as a result, we'll, we'll listen to anyone who has something to say uh, about eternity in hopes that what they will say will give us the hope that we're looking for. And, and this, is, this is demonstrated in the fact that the, in the last decade, the, the best-selling Christian books, without question, it's not even close, the best-selling Christian books in the last decade are books written by people who claim to have gone to heaven as a result of a near-death experience and then write about everything that they experienced. Uh, and now, the interesting thing is that speculation about how this could have happened, where someone could go to heaven and come back to tell all about it, seems to be non-existent. Very, very few people even seem to question it. We just eat the books up like crazy, uh, because we hope that we'll find hope in what they have to say. But, but interestingly enough, there's only a handful of people in the scriptures who experienced heaven in any way and got to talk about it. Those who had prophetic visions of heaven, the detail they gave was scant at best. Very little detail, and any detail they did give was strictly focused on the glory of God. And there's one guy in the entire Bible that may or may not have gone to heaven 
in the, in, essentially in the body, have, have actually been taken up to heaven. He even says, right, talking about Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he even says, I don't know if, it was, if, it was, if I was actually there or if it was a vision, but the only guy to have possibly been to heaven said, I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't tell you a thing about it because it was too wonderful for human words. Yet myriads of people today are apparently being caught up in heaven through near-death experiences only to profit off the sales of their books. And they give incredibly detailed, self-focused, unbiblical accounts of what they saw. But then for some reason we're shocked when some of these authors come out and admit that they made it all up in order to make money. Alex Malarkey, who is the author of The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven... Uh, in which he details his own trips to heaven during a two-month coma, wrote a letter in which he admitted that he made it all up and that none of it actually happened. That that letter was entitled, An Open Letter to Lifeway and Other Sellers, Buyers, and Marketers of Heaven Tourism, in which he says, I quote, I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. And thank God for his honesty and his willingness to repent of writing that book that he comes out and says was a lie. Uh, but, But our discernment and our understanding on this issue needs to improve greatly. And it must be based in Scripture, not fanciful, self promoting accounts. Just, just as a, as a bonus, I guess, Lazarus spent four days in the grave before Jesus brought him back from the dead, and there is no record of him saying one thing about heaven. And that should cause us to pause and reconsider the claims of modern people who claim to have gone to heaven while in a coma. Um, fr- friends, we, we don't need to speculate on eternity. We, we don't need to seek out our answers from books written by people today. Uh, we, we have what God has told us, and he has told us what we need to know about eternity in his word. He may not have told us everything we want to know about eternity, but he told us everything we need to know about eternity in his word. And so it's best for us to ignore uh, the thoughts of man and instead magnify and wholly trust in the inspired, revealed word of God as our, own author- as our only authority on issues relating to eternity. So with that, go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. And we will uh, we'll be in Revelation 20 verses 11 through 21 verse 8. So open to Revelation chapter 20 verse 11. And with that, I would like to go ahead and pray for our time and then we'll, we'll jump into the text. Jesus, we are so grateful for this morning. And Lord, as we celebrate you entering Jerusalem as a conquering king, we recognize that you were not the king that everybody thought you would be. You were a much greater king who would not just conquer a political system, but you would conquer sin and death on the cross. And we are so grateful for that and so grateful that through that, you bought eternity for us, that, that you made a way for us to be with you for all eternity for those who put their faith in you. And so now I ask that you would lead our time 
and that, uh, that you would be glorified in this time. And Lord, as we pray for another church in the area every week, I, I pray for Jeremy Hickman and Harvest Albuquerque as, as they are in the very early phases of planting that church. And Lord, they have a small core group, but it is growing, and we thank you for that. And I ask that you would provide for them supernaturally, that you would just make so clear that you are providing everything they need for that plant, and that it would be a church that makes your name great, uh, that, that is faithful to your word, that proclaims your name throughout the city, and that that would be a place where your spirit moves heavily for your glory. And Jesus, we pray all these things for the sake of your wonderful name. Amen. So Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 11, I'll read through chapter 21, verse 8. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the seas gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned. For her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And now, now with, with this idea of eternity, there are some, uh, some pretty prevalent viewpoints within society as to what happens after death. And, and so I just want to kind of go over five of the more popular views, uh, first of which is naturalism. Okay, naturalism. You are just a body, you don't have a soul, and when you die, you're buried in the ground and that's it. There's no conscious state, there's nothing happening, you become fertilizer for the soil as you decompose, and that's it. Uh, The second one is reincarnation. This is the idea that you have some kind of spiritual debt that you must pay off through good works, and depending on how you live, if you live a good life, then you can be reincarnated into a better life on earth, and if you live a a bad life, then you're reincarnated into a lower form here on earth. 
And through this ascending and descending of the ladder, essentially, you can reach spiritual, uh, spiritual perfection or nirvana uh, based on the decisions you make in various lives. Okay, the next one is universalism. This is the view that God is loving, and so since God is loving, I mean, he wouldn't send someone to hell, so he's going to save everybody. Okay, there are popular books in recent days that really push this idea. That, that God is love, and so he'll save everyone, and no one will go to hell. Um, but the problem with this is that it, it forgets about the idea of God's justice, his righteousness, his holiness, his wrath, and things of that nature, uh, in the name of exalting the love of God. Somewhat related to this is annihilationism, which, which looks at universalism and says, well, I mean, come on, everybody can't go to heaven. And so, I mean, some people don't get to go to heaven, but, but it still seems extreme for God to send someone to hell. So they just cease to exist. Anyone who doesn't go to heaven just ceases to exist. And, and those people who are saved get to enjoy heaven for all eternity. Um, and then the last one, if you, if you have a lot of experience in the Catholic Church, you're probably familiar with this one, and that is purgatory. That hell is really for the really bad sinners. And heaven is for people who are good enough and righteous enough. But then for most of us, we are kind of in the middle ground. And so you know, there's, this, there's this period of, of essentially spiritual limbo called purgatory where you uh, endure purification for your sins uh, until you achieve the holiness that's required for you to enter into heaven. And all of these positions are equally unbiblical. And none, none of these positions that are pushed in society are biblical, as we will plainly see in the text this morning. And so uh, with that, the, the main idea uh, of this message this morning is this, that every aspect of our lives should be shaped by a right understanding of eternity. Okay? Every aspect of our lives should be shaped by a right understanding of eternity. You see, I need to understand eternity rightly so that I know how to live my life. I need to have a right understanding of eternity so that I don't live my life essentially in the wrong way because I had a complete misunderstanding of what was going to happen after I died. So with that, in the text this morning, first of all, the, uh, the context that we need to understand is everything's done at this point. There is nothing left to happen except judgment and everyone's respective dwelling places in eternity. There, there are no second chances at this point. There is no changing your mind at this point. It is done. The, the world as we know it is over. And then we pick up in verse 11 with final judgment. So in, in uh, chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, we see final judgment taking place. And the first thing that we see is that God is the judge. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. That, that is only verbiage that can be given and attributed to God. This is no one other than God Almighty sitting on the throne to judge everyone. You see, at the end of all things, it will be God who judges you and I. It will not be society. It will not be our friends. It will not be our coworkers. It will not be those people whose opinion you care so greatly about, it will be God who judges you for how you live your life. You see, our lives on earth should reflect the fact that we care about what he thinks, 
because we recognize that we're going to stand before him one day, not what others think. And I've heard so many people use the phrase, only God can judge me. And it's usually related to doing something they know they shouldn't be doing and being called out for it. And then they say, oh, only God can judge me. Um, Yes, yes, he will. Yes, he will, actually. And that should scare you. Like that, that's not something where we just brazenly say, oh, only God can judge me, as if that's a lesser issue than being judged by your peers. Like that, that should be terrifying, and it should cause me to say, yeah, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to have to answer for why I did that before the God of the universe. See, God will judge us. Next, we see that all people from all time will be judged according to how they lived their lives. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And again, at the end of verse 13, that everyone was judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So he says in verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, We will all stand before the throne of God and God will show no favoritism to you and I based on the titles or positions we held on this earth. It doesn't matter what what your job was on this earth. It doesn't matter what your title was. It doesn't matter how much money you had or what kind of car you drove. It doesn't matter if you had more degrees than Fahrenheit. God is not going to show favoritism to you more than somebody else. And he's not going to show somebody else more favoritism than you if you see yourself as being lesser than other people. Everyone will stand before the throne and will be judged the same way according to how they lived. And he goes on in verse 14 and 15 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the book of life is the, it's also referred to as the Lamb's book of life earlier in the book of Revelation. And, and it is the book that, that God will open on judgment day to have the list of every person who has received salvation through Jesus Christ. That if you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that your name is written in the book of life. But if you don't put your faith in Jesus, if you reject Jesus, then your name is not written in the book of life, and the end that you are waiting for is the lake of fire. And you see this, this lake of fire is not this, it's not symbolism to scare us into following Jesus. Okay, it's a real place. The Bible treats it as a real place. And those positions that we put up on the screen, the universalism and annihilationism that, that say, oh, God would never send someone there. Yes, he will. Right in the last verse of Revelation 20. And this lake of fire is eternal conscious torment. It is eternal forever and ever. And it is conscious. You will be aware of it. You will be enduring it. You will wish that it could stop. But it will never stop. And you will be aware of it forever. We know this because Jesus says in Mark 9, 48, when he's talking about hell, he says, where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. 
And in Revelation 14, when he's talking about those who reject Jesus, Jesus and embrace evil, that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and they have no rest day or night. This is the reality for those who reject Jesus. And that's not me saying it. That's the word of God saying it. And it can be easy to look at this and say, but how could God do that if he's loving? Well, it's because he's also just. And that he will not, he will not profane his own name by looking the other way with sin. Sin must be punished. The penalty for sin must be paid. And if you put your faith in Jesus, then Jesus paid the penalty for your sin on your behalf. So you don't have to worry about that anymore. But if you've rejected Jesus, or if you have not put your faith in Jesus, then there has been no payment for your sin yet, and you are the one left to pay for it for all eternity. That is the justice of God. And if this is you, I I just want to plead with you that you would taste and see that the Lord is good and that living life for yourself and rejecting the only way that you have for salvation is foolish. It is foolish because judgment is coming and eternity is long. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, I would encourage you to not walk out of this place without coming to him and asking for the forgiveness of your sins and laying your life before his feet. But for those who are saved, make no mistake, we will still endure judgment. For those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, make no mistake, you will still stand before the throne of God to be judged for how you live your life. You are not exempt from that. And we should live our lives with a healthy fear of recognizing, I will answer to God. Though my sins have been paid for, I will still have to answer for how I lived my life. And I would prefer to not have to say why I did something I shouldn't have or didn't do something I should have. And along with this, we read in 1 Corinthians 3 about what the judgment is going to look like for believers. Paul Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Okay, so what he's saying is you're either building something of value or something of no value whatsoever. Meaning your life is either focused on eternity and you are living your life in a way that says, I know eternity is coming and I will stand before God and I want my life to be a pleasant offering to him, not something that didn't care at all about him. So I want to live my life and build something of eternal value with my life. Okay, that's something of value. But if I'm just living for myself and doing what I want, then I'm building something of no value. He says, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, that is judgment day, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So he's saying, you will either receive reward for how you lived your life, or you will receive no reward, though you will still be saved. You won't have any reward. And, and it would be so foolish for us to be like, well, shoot, I mean, if I'm saved, whatever. Like, I'm good without the reward. So long as I'm saved, then that's cool with me. No. We, we, won't, we won't think that when we're standing before the throne of God. Like, he says we will suffer loss. Like, I will, I will be grieved over the fact that I have nothing to show for my life. 
yet there is great reward in standing before the throne of God knowing I live my life for you. See, either way, there are implications for how believers live their lives. So, so there are implications for how I choose to spend my money, how I choose to spend my time, how I choose to engage my job or my neighbors or my family. There are implications for my daily life because I know that I will stand before the throne of God and though I will not be judged for my sins because Jesus has paid the penalty for my sins, I will receive a varying degree of reward for how I live my life. So you have to ask yourself this question, in in what ways does your life reveal where your hope is? Is your hope in eternity? And so the way you live your life reveals that your hope is in eternity and that that's where your eyes are fixed? That you want to stand before God and be told, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master? Or is your hope here on earth? In flippant relationships, in pursuing material possessions, in short-term experiences that hold no eternal value whatsoever. There's a saying that you can know what someone truly cares about and what someone truly values by looking at their bank statement and seeing where they spend their money. And I would say the same is true about your schedule. You can know what someone truly values by just looking at their schedule. How do they fill up their time? How do they spend their time? It's amazing how we will let ourselves be consumed with things that don't really matter and purchasing things that are going to be useless in a year and, and doing things that hold no eternal value just because we want to have these temporary pleasures all the while forgetting about the things that really hold value. I've, I've heard so many times, I mean more times than I can count, where there's someone that maybe I haven't seen for a few weeks at church, and then, and then I'll see them, and I'll say, hey, I haven't seen you at church in a while. And their response is, yeah, we've just been really busy. Too busy to go to church? What are you doing? Where are your, val- where is your priorities? Oh, yeah, we just needed to sleep in because we were so busy on Sunday. Well, I mean, that, that says a lot about where your priorities are then, doesn't it? that I wouldn't structure my weekly schedule based on things of eternal value, but that instead I would structure it based on things of today's value. See, when we live for today and the things of this world, we reveal that we don't have a right understanding of eternity. Because if we did, it would affect how we lived our lives. It just would. If we had a right understanding of eternity and what is coming, it would affect how we live our lives today. And so with that, the passage transitions then in verse 21, 1 through 8, into what eternity is going to be like for those who have put their faith in Jesus, for those who have received salvation and get to spend eternity with Jesus. This is what it will look like. And and let let me just restate. There's a lot of stuff in this passage that isn't said. A lot of our answers that are not answered in this passage or a lot of our questions that are not answered in this passage. And we would do well to recognize why that is. That those things that we wonder about that are not answered here, that they must not be that important when it comes to eternity. And that instead, what we find here is what will truly matter and what we, what we will truly be most concerned about in eternity. So with that, Let's look at verses 1 through 8, and, and what we see in this passage is that God will make all 
things new. God will make all things new. And, and just to be clear, verses one, there, there's two separate sections here, verses 1 through 8 and then verses 9 through 27. And, and verses 9 through 27 serve to fill out more detail about what is mentioned in verses 1 through 8. Okay, uh, So we're going to focus mainly on verses 1 through 8, but we'll kind of reference a few things in the latter part of the chapter. But we see in verse 1, the first thing that we see is there's a new heaven and a new earth. This, this world, this universe has been affected by sin, it has been tainted by sin. And so when God makes all things new in the end, he will renew everything. The effects of sin will be no more. And we should just let that statement just kind of permeate all of our life and just think about what things in this life are affected by sin that will be no more in heaven. But next, verse 2, he says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He says, I, he, says he saw a holy city, New Jerusalem. Now, there's some speculation on what, what is this, what is New Jerusalem, what does it represent? Well, we don't have to speculate because he actually answers the question in verses 10 and 11, where he says that an angel, verse of, end of verse 9, I'm sorry, an angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Now, what in the Bible is referred to as the bride of Christ? The church, the church is the bride of Christ. And right there in verse, in verse 10, or in verses 9 and 10, he says, I'm going to show you the bride, the new Jerusalem. So we can know in the passage that the new Jerusalem means the church. That these are all believers from all time who make up the big C church, the universal church. And it is being shown to us in the imagery of a city. And he actually uses two illustrations, the city, the new Jerusalem. And then in verse 11, he says, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So the first illustration he gives of the church is a city. Now, why that's important is because in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was first of all, the location of the temple. And within the temple was the very presence of God. But not only was the temple in Jerusalem, but the throne of the king was in Jerusalem. And so this imagery of a city is telling us that in eternity, God will reign forever as king, but yet he will be fully present with his people. And we will see more of that here in just a minute. But the other illustration that he uses is that of a jewel says its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, if you know anything about stones, or maybe, maybe you're married, and guys, you went shopping for an engagement ring, or ladies, you received an engagement ring, and maybe it was a diamond, and one of the, one of the, the things that tells you how valuable a diamond is is how clear it is. Because the more clear it is, the more pure it is, Right? And this imagery of it being clear as crystal is the fact that the church of God, all believers from all time, will be perfectly, completely pure. 
And I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, the most frustrating thing about life is that you still sin and that I still sin. And that though I have put my faith in Jesus and I have received forgiveness for my sins, I still do the thing I don't want to do. And the thing that I do want to do, that is obey Jesus and follow God, I just can't seem to get it right. But yet in eternity, that will be no more because we will be as pure as we could possibly be because God will make sure that his church is pure. But again, related to the idea of God's presence being with his people, in verse 3, we see the personal presence of God. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. God will be fully, personally present with us. And you might say, yeah, but isn't God present with us now? Yes, but because of our sin, in contrast to his holiness, we cannot experience the fullness of the presence of God. That's why when various guys throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament experienced just a glimpse of the presence of God, they thought they were going to die. And God told Moses, you cannot see my glory and live. Why? Because we cannot, in our sinful state, endure the presence of God. But when we are in heaven, when we are in eternity with God and have been made pure, we will be able to experience the fullness of the presence of God. And we will have all of God for all eternity. Now with that, we also see the renewal of all things. Not only will we get, not only will we be pure and not only will we get to enjoy the fullness of the presence of God, but all things will be made new. Verses 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's a way of saying it doesn't get any more true than this. So write it down because it's going to happen. I'm going to make all things new. And, and to, to know how it is that God's going to make all things new, all we have to do is go back to Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden and see how God made everything very good and that his design was very good and right. And the reason we know that the garden of Eden in, verse, in Genesis 1 and 2 informs how God's going to make all things new is because in Revelation 22, 1 and 5, he uses the very same imagery from the garden to describe eternity. There's a river just like there was in the garden. The tree of life is there just like in the garden. God's presence is, just like, is there just like in the garden. And there is no sin just like in Genesis 1 and 2. But there are three elements that we will really get to experience on a personal level, as God makes all things new. The first is physical. There will be physical renewal, okay? We will have physical bodies. We are not just going to be spirits floating around in heaven. Okay? We will have physical bodies, but we will not have these physical bodies. We will not have all the injuries and ailments and aches and pains and 
sickness and all those things that come with these bodies, but we will have physical bodies. And the reason we know that is in Romans 6, verse 5, Paul says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And how was Jesus' resurrection important? Well, He had a physical body. He had a glorified physical body. He was not just a spirit. And this should give us, this should give us a lot of comfort because so many, so many of you deal with pain on a daily basis. Varying forms. You could be like me and you endure pain because of stupid things you did when you were younger and now you're paying for it as you're older. Or you could have pain that doctors don't even know why you're having it. And it is with you every day. And you wake up with that pain and you endure the entire day with that pain and you go to bed with that pain and that pain wakes you up in the middle of the night. And when you finally make it through that sleepless, light, sleepless night, you have to do it all over again the next day. And there's no sign of it getting any better. But yet, in eternity, we won't have to worry about that. <laughs> that that pain will be but a distant memory because God is making all things new. There will be relational renewal. See, we will be in perfect relationship with God and with one another. There will be no more conflict. There will be no more pain from broken relationships, but we will be in right relationship with one another. James chapter 4 makes clear that all interpersonal conflict is first and foremost based in our conflict with God because of our sin and that it manifests itself in how we interact with one another. And let me just make very clear, if you claim to be a believer and if you have conflict with people in your life right now, it is time to go make it right with them. It is time to go be reconciled to your brother or to your sister in the name of Jesus. Because you're going to spend eternity with them anyways, so you might as well get it straightened out now. <laughs> but lastly, there will be emotional renewal. It says in verse, in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. There are things that break our hearts that cause us to grieve, that weigh on us in the morning, that, that keep us from falling asleep in the evening. And those things will be but a distant memory. And they will not cause us pain anymore. You see, when we take all of these things together, when we look at all of this, it should cause us to long for eternity. It should cause us to say, I can't wait. I can't wait. Because if we're content with this world right now, then that means that we don't really understand what's waiting because this world is, is just awful, honestly, compared to what is waiting for us in eternity. See, we should put our hope in what is coming, not in what is currently happening. My hope is not in a presidential candidate. My hope is not in who the president just nominated to the Supreme Court and whether or not they fit my political ideology. My hope is not in whether or not they cure a disease or if I have financial security for the next 40 years. Those things are fine in and of themselves, but that's not where our hope lies. 
That's not where I find my joy in life. My hope lies in the fact that God is going to make all things new and that because of Jesus, I get to spend eternity with him as he makes all things new. So in verse 6, we see the source of this hope. We see the source of this hope in verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I can't wait to hear those words. I just think of the pain that we endure and the things that cause us heartache and the things that, that each of you endures and the things that we pray about and that we, we hear about as a staff and the heartbreak that we read about on the news. And I just can't wait to hear God say, it's done. And this is based in who God is. That's the first place that we find our hope, is in who God is. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God had no beginning, and he will have no end. He is the beginning of all things, meaning he is the one that started everything, and he is the one who will end everything, and that he himself has no beginning and end. He is in control of all things, and so I can know I can know that he is going to do this. So my hope also comes in what God has promised. Look in verse 6. He says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You don't have to pay for Jesus. Jesus paid for you with his life. My question is, do you thirst for Jesus? Do you want more of Jesus? Or is what you have in this life enough for you? God said in Jeremiah 29, You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So do you long to have more of Jesus? Are you willing to let go of the things in this world to take hold of more of Jesus? Or do you hold on so tightly to the things that you have and say, No, Jesus, don't take this from me. See, the things of this world will leave you wanting more. It will leave you empty, trying to fill that hole in your life. But but when Jesus is what you desire, then you will truly, truly be satisfied. Because God will give you the fullness of himself. Maybe we can't take the fullness of him now, but we will get as much of him as we could ever want in eternity. So in verse 7, we, we receive kind of a, an admonishment, if you will, to keep our eyes on God. He says in verse 7, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So he's essentially saying, don't, don't get distracted. Don't get caught up in things that don't matter. Keep your eyes on God. Keep your eyes fixed on what is coming. And I, want, I really want to address a lie that is very prevalent in our church today. Not necessarily this church, but I mean the American church today. 
And I am certain that it is a lie absolutely from Satan himself to keep you distracted. And it is this. Don't be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. If someone says that, just in the most gracious way you can, just go, "Ah, wrong. (laughs) Be gracious, right? Be gracious. But that's not true. No, you should be so heavenly minded that you are of actual good to this earth. Because if you're not heavenly minded, then the good that you'll be to this earth is what this world says is good. And I'm sorry, but that's not good. Paul himself in Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2 said, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth below. Don't be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good is the exact opposite of what Paul said right there in Colossians. No, we should be so mindful of heaven that it affects how we live on this earth. Being merely mindful of things on earth means that you will be of no use in the kingdom of heaven. And I don't want to be of no use to God. So we should set our minds on things in heaven and we should be focused on eternity such that it affects how we live. There was a study that was done some time ago where they they took a group of elementary school kids and they separated them into, uh, into grades. And so it was first and second grade, third and fourth grade, fifth and sixth grade. And they went to each group of students and they gave them a choice. And they said, you can have this small candy bar now. Or if you wait till the end of the day, you can have this gargantuan candy bar later. And the, it was fascinating because the first and second graders, almost across the board, chose the smaller candy bar now over the bigger candy bar later. And the third and fourth graders, it was kind of mixed. And then the fifth and sixth graders, almost across the board, said, oh, wait, are you kidding me? I'll take the huge candy bar later if I just have to wait a few hours. And, and what the study revealed is that as one matures in their understanding of reward over time, they're willing to delay pleasure now for greater pleasure later. That that is a phenomenon of psychology that is as true as any other. And in the same way, when we have a right understanding of eternity, when we have a right understanding of what is coming and we seek to live accordingly, we will be more willing to let go of the temporary lesser pleasures that would take our eyes off Jesus so that we may live for the eternal greater pleasures that will fix our eyes on Jesus. So we should be focused on eternity such that it affects how we live our lives now. But just in case there was any question, God makes clear at the end of this section that sin will not be allowed in to eternity with him. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable. As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
See, if you make, if you make a life out of doing that which is sinful and not following Jesus, if you embrace this world and reject Jesus, you will not get to enter into eternity with Jesus, but, your, but his wrath is all you will get to experience. I don't care if you grew up in the church. I don't care what you think gets you into heaven. Unless you came to the point where you came to Jesus and said, Jesus, forgive me of my sin and help me to live for you, I am yours Unless you came to the place where you repented and put your trust, your faith, your dependence in Him, you will not get to experience eternity. And let me just be clear to those of you who have not put your faith in Him, and even those of you who have, but this idea of not getting to spend eternally, eternity with Him is appropriate for anyone who hasn't put their faith in Jesus. You might not make it home today. I lost so many friends before I was even 25. Car accidents, freak accidents while they were out in the forest, just things where they thought they had plenty of time, and they didn't. This is not something to put off. This is not something to say, I want to live a little more before I get right with Jesus. No, you want to get right with Jesus so that you can live a life truly worth living. So how does this affect our lives? Well, how should this affect my daily life then? Well, there's a couple practical implications, if you will, for this idea of living for eternity. And and the first is this, that we should think about eternity. In our daily life, we should take time to just think about eternity. That I would come to places in Scripture that talk about eternity, and that I would just pray about it and meditate on it and spend time thinking about eternity and asking God to help me to live a life that is worthy of that reality. Second, we should talk about eternity. Don't, don't think that it's weird to talk about eternity. Honestly, if it, I, I would say if, if you think it's weird to talk about eternity, I would wonder if you think that it's a reality. It's not weird to talk about the rain when it's raining. It's raining, right? If I believe that eternity is a, is a real thing, and I believe that spending eternity with God is a real destination for those who have put their faith in Jesus, and that spending eternity apart from God in hell and under the very wrath of God is a reality for those who have rejected Jesus, then it's not weird for me to talk about it. It's totally normal. We should talk about it. We should talk about it with those who are believers as we encourage them to live their lives for Jesus, and we should talk about it with those who are not believers as we encourage them to put their faith in Jesus. Next, we should view our relationships through the lens of eternity. That the friends I have and the relationships I'm in are not just relationships for me to enjoy, but they are relationships that have eternal implications. And that I would view those relationships in light of their eternal destiny as much as my own. And lastly, we should make daily decisions in light of eternity. The way that I go about my daily life should reflect what I believe to be true about eternity. If I believe that I'm going to spend eternity with God and that I'm going to stand before His throne and be judged and so are my kids, then I'm probably going to schedule my life in such a way that it shows that that is a priority 
I'm a youth pastor, and so I see far too often students not coming to youth group very often, and I ask why, oh, he or she had baseball or soccer or orchestra or whatever, and those things are great, but when that is made the priority over church, over pursuing discipleship in Jesus, then that communicates to your family sports and clubs and school are more important than Jesus. And that does not have eternity in mind. That has this life in mind. So we should make daily decisions in light of eternity. How we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we use our things, how we view our things, understanding that our things and our money and our time are God's. And that we are stewards of what he has given us and we will answer for how we stewarded what he gave us. And it is in the finished work of Jesus that we can have hope and that's why we are going to observe communion this morning. As we remember the finished work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf that we could receive forgiveness of our sins and enjoy eternity with him in the fullness of his presence because he has forgiven us of our sins and given us eternal life. Now, if, if you are newer here to Faith Church, we practice open communion, which means if you have put your faith in Jesus, regardless of whether you're a member of this church or not, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you are free to come and partake of communion. But I need to make clear that this is something for Christians. If you are not a believer then this is something that we would respectfully ask for you to remain seated and just let those who have put their faith in Jesus observe Jesus' death on the cross through these elements. But at the same time, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, I would encourage you to do so. And then you are more than welcome to come on up. Uh, But we have a gluten-free option up front if you need that. And uh, the outer aisles can go toward the back and the center aisles can come forward. And then we will take the elements together. So... With that, go ahead and come forward.